0: Over these uh, several weeks of Advent, we are looking at familiar stories from the New Testament about the birth of Jesus, but as we do that, trying to recapture the significance of Jesus' birth. So, if, if you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special enough times, you've heard Linus read this story. You know, if, if you've hung around churches much, you've, you've heard these stories about the birth of Jesus, even if you aren't a believer in Jesus, you hang around Western culture or certain places, Eastern culture, you'll hear the story of Jesus' birth. And the more we hear something like that, the more it is to just kind of go, yeah, been there, done that, heard that before. So helpful for us to take some time to pause and say, can, can we can we recapture again the uh The significance, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our world that Jesus was born? One of the things we'll learn today, there's a line in the story that we're about to hear. It's going to be spoken by the angel Gabriel. He's going to say, nothing will be impossible with God. Everything about Jesus is intended to show us that nothing is impossible with God. From the first moment before Jesus has even become a tiny embryo in the womb of Mary, here's Gabriel saying, from that first moment, Jesus is coming to teach us that nothing is impossible with God. All the way through, he's going to mention to Mary that Jesus is a king who will reign forever. From the first moments to the forever, Jesus' coming is intended to show us that nothing is impossible with God. The end result should be that we trust God more. We trust ourselves less. So let's hear as the scriptures are read. Donna, thank you.
1: The scripture reading this morning is from Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, it's me again. i asking what I've been asking all week, that you would use this part of the Scriptures to light an inferno of faith. Um. In my heart in the hearts of everyone who is able to hear these words today, Lord, would you set our hearts ablaze with belief and take away all the excuses and the reasons that we have to keep clinging to trust in self and to let those go and and cling to trust in you instead. Lord, draw every person in this room closer to your son Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, there it is. Gabriel says, verse 37 nothing will be impossible with God. It means that Jesus isn't like the old or the new. He's not like my old scout leader, and he's not like the new Facebook. Let's start with a couple of illustrations. Jesus is not like my old scout leader. I was in Boy Scouts for a few years growing up. And you know, as a young teenager, here was my perspective on my troop leader. If there's an emergency, he'll rescue me, so I'm kinda glad he's there. But he's mainly there to hand out merit badges. He's mainly there to give more badges to the better scouts. He's mainly there to reward good performance. Jesus is not like that. A lot of us think Jesus is like that. It's nice that he's there in an emergency if we need to be rescued, but mainly he's there to give us kind of goodness merit badges. Like You are good at being good, so here's a goody badge. And you are better at being good than other people, so you get more badges than they do. And that's what Jesus does in your life and mine when we fall into this trap of trusting ourselves called moralism. Moralism says we trust God where we can, and we work hard where we can't. If God believed in moralism, Gabriel would have shown up and said, Mary, here's some news Most things will be possible for God, but some things are impossible for him, so that's where we just have to work hard and make up the gap. That's not what Gabriel said, because God doesn't believe in that kind of moralism. Moralism like that is exhausting. It breaks down trust for other people How can I trust you and love you if you're my competition fighting with me over who gets the most merit badges? How can I trust and love you if there's only so much goodness reward to go around and I gotta make sure I get to it before you do? If Jesus is this kind of cosmic scout leader who's waiting to pin the merit badge on my chest or yours and I gotta beat you to it, it's gonna be really hard for us to trust each other. That kind of moralism where you're constantly viewing other people as the competition is exhausting and wearying. Jesus, in that view, becomes the audience that we have to impress by our performance. Thank goodness that that's not who Jesus really is. Jesus doesn't say, you know, some things are possible with God and some things aren't, so get to work. Jesus is the kind of king in whose kingdom Angels show up and say, nothing will be impossible with God. So Jesus is not like my old scout leader. He's also not like the new Facebook. You may have seen this new logo for a new company called Meta, actually an old company with a new name, Facebook's new name. Their logo, and if you surf around their site a little bit, you pick up on this, is It's basically a symbol for human potential. Look how we can imagine a better future for ourselves, a better future for the human race, a better future for human interactions. Well, Jesus isn't like that. This is is humanism. Humanism says there's no God, but it's okay because look how much we can achieve on our own. Moralism says there's a God and he can do some stuff and what he can't do, we will work hard and do ourselves. And then humanism comes along and says, bad news guys, there's not a God, it's just us. But good news, look how much we can do if we put our minds to it. In that reading, Jesus becomes a symbol for the potential of humanity to improve itself. There are some people who read the scriptures that way. Well, Jesus is the marriage badge distributor, or Jesus is the symbol for what the human race can achieve on our own. Humanism like that is hopeless, right? It says, all things are impossible with God, because there is no God. He can't do anything, because he's not there. But, a lot of stuff is possible for us without him. That's, here's why that's hopeless. If we're, if we're trying to improve ourselves as a race, how easy is it gonna be for us all to agree on what constitutes improvement? How are we doing in that category? Are we generally good at sharing a common vision for what a better future ought to look like? Right? No. No, groups wind up fighting. The future as we see it is greater than the future as you see it. And so in the end, who wins? The people with more power, more money, more influence. The fancier website. The billions of dollars, the three billion people using their product, right? A very small number of people wind up winning the world if we take this approach. Because there's going to be disagreement about what the better future should be. And we don't all get equal say in that. Because of the way the human race is fragmented, we need something other than this wearying, exhausting kind of moralism and this hopeless humanism. And the good news of Scripture is Jesus is not like the old and he's not like the new. There is someone we can trust who comes to us from outside these broken human systems. And because God is at work in the coming of Jesus, There are things that are possible in our world that would be otherwise utterly impossible. Jesus is not a symbol for trusting in ourselves. He is time and space, flesh and blood embodiment of this gospel promise. That there is a God who can do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's why you get this language in verses 31 through 33 talking about Jesus in terms of of, uh, one who is great and called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give him a throne, and, and that throne will endure forever. Jesus' rule and reign will never end. It's impossible for us to imagine that kind of thing happening in our world. Unless, unless there's a God with whom things that we can't imagine really are possible. And that God decides to break into our world, to rescue us in ways that we could never accomplish on our own. That's the good news of the birth of Jesus. Nothing will be impossible with God. And every moment of Jesus' existence is intended to drive that truth home for us. So, let's let's do some application. Let's ask the question, what would it look like if we started to trust God in that way? What are some marks of heart and life that have started to trust that God can do things beyond our abilities and beyond our imagination? What are some of those marks? Of that kind of life well where is that life going to come from it's going to come from the holy spirit verse 35 says the holy spirit will come upon you mary and the power of the most high god will overshadow you the holy spirit is the author of life in the scriptures the holy spirit is the one who can give life where there is none And so this is why the angel says to Mary, Currently, Mary, there is no life in your womb, but there will be. Why? How? The Holy Spirit has this power to give a new kind of life. And the Holy Spirit works that power in us so that we become citizens of this never-ending kingdom of Jesus and that kingdom is marked by certain characteristics. What are those? That's the question we wanna answer. We're gonna answer that by looking at how Mary responds to the message of the angel. Now, many of us in this room have grown up in a Protestant context. We haven't had a whole lot of deep connection with uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And so we have a Mary allergy. I'll just put it that way. Like, many Protestants don't even want to say what the Bible says about Mary because they're concerned it will sound too much like what Catholic teaching says about Mary. Well, let's get over it, okay? Let's say what the Bible says, right? The the whole deal about being Protestants is we wanted to try to say what the Bible says. And here's what the Bible says about Mary, you know, one is... She has been favored by God. That's the first thing that the angel says in verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. It's okay to say that. God's messenger says that. The scriptures say that. Um, and it's okay to look to Mary and say, you know what? She, she, in some incredibly remarkable ways, starts to live out the character of the kingdom here in this first moment. Like Jesus hasn't even been born yet, and she's already living as a disciple of Jesus ought to live. She's already showing the fruits of the Holy Spirit, this kingdom life. Now, Mary's never going to replace or supplement or complete something that's missing about Jesus. And if you listen to Mary's own words in the Scripture, she's always talking about how great God is. She's never talking about how great she is. So we have some things to learn from her. Here's the first one. The first mark of this kind of trust in God is humility. There's a French painter named James Tissot. He lived at the end of the 19th century, so late 1800s. And uh, at some point, he had a, a religious conversion. He, he sort of his whole world changed and and his art changed. He he had this newfound desire to um, express in artwork the things that he was believing. He painted lots of illustrations of biblical stories. One of them is this painting of the story that we just read of Gabriel visiting Mary. And so he's painted some decorations in the room that he thought might look like first century Eastern home. And he's painted this angel that if, if you look at it in a detailed way, it's a little scary. Like you would want him to say, do not be afraid if he showed up. Because he's got these six wings and it's kind of weird looking face and, and very intense. Um, but if you're ever able to look at a detailed version of this painting, you'll notice that Mary's hands are held out like this. Kind of this posture of humility of, and, and she expresses it in verse 38 when she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. If, if we are trusting that God can do the impossible and that he can accomplish in our world and for us things that we could never do for ourselves, then we should know who is the Lord and who are the servants in that equation. Right? It's an immediate sense of you are the sovereign one, you are the one in control, and I am your humble servant. I am ready to receive and obey every word you have for me. Now, that's the posture Mary has toward God as the angel announces God's purpose for her life. But if you keep reading Luke's gospel and the other gospels, it's the posture we're meant to have toward Jesus. Jesus, you are the Lord. We are your disciples. We are your followers. The direction we travel is set by you. Which way are you going? We're going that way too. What word do you have for me? I am ready to hear it, receive it, obey it. We don't question his right to engage us in his purposes in the world. If Jesus has something for us to do, we don't get to say, but hang on a second. I'd rather do something different. You are the Lord and we are your humble servants. And here's where the encouragement comes in. Even if other people would look at us and say, that's impossible. Yates family, five kids under five. No way, that's impossible, you can't do it. You're gonna need so much help. Who will help you with that? People aren't that generous. They aren't that willing to give. You know what, we're not. I don't know about you. Trisha and I have kind of a little routine we go through sometimes. Like, we'll talk about something going on at the church. She's a pastor's wife, so she hears a lot about stuff going on at the church. And we'll say, you know, here's this hard thing or this thing that went wrong or this thing I did poorly. And, um, and then I'll say something like, man, what a messed up church. Who would want to go there? And she'll say, but hang on, we're messed up too. It's the perfect place for us. Right? That's who we are. That's who Christians are. We are people who cannot save ourselves. We are people who cannot do for ourselves. We look at ourselves and say, God, you better be the one with whom all things are possible. Because left to ourselves, not a whole lot of productive stuff is possible. But he doesn't leave us to ourselves. And things that would seem totally impossible, like a group of selfish sinners would get together and say, let's be generous to others because they need help. That's possible. It's possible to dream wild dreams. It's it's possible to have big visions because we know we are the Lord's humble servants. Not arrogant servants saying we can dream big because we're all that. Saying we can dream big because God is big. Even if other people would say, you're not that important. It's easy to miss this. It's back in verse 26. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month that Elizabeth, Mary's relative, was pregnant with John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel was sent from God. Ooh, Gabriel, mighty, important figure in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, you know, big, important stuff going on. Sent from God, big, important stuff. To a city of Galilee, hmm. Nah. 70 miles away from Jerusalem, where all the important stuff is happening in my world, Galilee of the Gentiles, sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. A little out of the way, perched on a cliff, there are no roads that go through Nazareth. There's only one road that goes to Nazareth. You don't go from Nazareth to anywhere else, right? It's not on the way to anything. It is this tiny little village obscure little place, take this message to a teenager. Mary is a virgin betrothed to Joseph. It means she and Joseph have exchanged consent. We will marry one another. And in one year, sometime in the next year, I will come to live with you. Until then, I'll be living at my parents' home as normal. So we're More than engaged, but not yet married, right? It's a different culture, a different custom. Typically this happened when a a girl was 13 or 14 years old. And then a year later, she would move into the home of her husband. Teenage girls living in Nazareth in the first century AD were not considered very important. Even if other people say, God can't have much for you. He can't do much with your life because you're, you're kind of in this little out-of-the-way place. You're not really that important a person. God gives us permission to say back, nothing is impossible with a God who has sent his son, Jesus. You may be 13 or 14 right now. And you may know a lot of people who would kind of overlook you as not that important. God is not one of those people. And in town, we shouldn't be that kind of church. Let's expect great things of our teenagers. Why, because they're awesome and we're an awesome church? No, because Jesus is a savior who brings the kingdom of a God with whom nothing is impossible. humility. This is a picture of a house in Nazareth. It's a house from the first century. It's a house from around the time that Jesus was born. Some people claim that this is the house that Joseph and Mary lived in, that Jesus would have grown up in. Now, there's no way for us to definitively know that. Here's what we do know. It is a very real house. It really does exist in Nazareth. There really was a village in Nazareth in the first century A.D. And, um, and it can't be that far from where Jesus grew up because Nazareth wasn't that big. <laughs> so a house like this within maybe a mile or two of this is where Jesus grew up. The reason I include that picture this morning is because here's another mark of um, what it's like the the character of, of this kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring, a kingdom in which we trust that nothing will be impossible with God. First, humility. You're the Lord, we're the servants. Call us where you want us to go, tell us what you want us to do. We are eager and ready and willing. Secondly, reality. We expect. to see God do wonders in our world. We expect to see God do amazing things in time and space, this flesh and blood world that we live in. We are not disconnected from reality. Some people think the more religious you get, the more Christian you become, the less you have to do with the real world. That is not how Jesus works. He doesn't sit in heaven and mystically rescue us. He's born into our world as a real-life human being with flesh and blood like ours. And so the first thing you hear is, is Mary greatly troubled, verse 29 says, that this angel has come because what has the angel said to her? Something terrifying. He has said, the Lord is with you. You have found favor with God. Why is Mary so startled? Because she lives in a world where angels don't normally show up, just like you and I do. She lives in this very real world where mostly in Nazareth, you, you know, you sweep the dust off the stone floor and you walk down to the well and you get water. And you feed something, you plant something, and you grow something, and you sow something, and you patch an old garment because... That's your world in the first century in Nazareth. And if you're married to a carpenter, you're, you know, you're hearing him complain about how he hit his thumb with a hammer again. Mary's this very real person who's like, this is not normal. And the angel says, you're going to have a baby. And she says, how? Verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? She lives in a very real world where children are born as a result of a close physical union between a man and a woman. And without that kind of close physical union, one of the names for which is sex, there are other names that are more lovely and other names that are more awful But without that kind of close, intimate, physical, sexual relationship, you do not conceive in your womb and bear a son. Mary knows that, she gets it. She lives in a real world. And she wants to know, hey, this thing about a king who is great, the son of the most high, reigning forever and ever, that sounds good, but I wanna see that happening in the real world. How is this gonna happen? (laughs) So one thing we can't do with this story is is dismiss the idea of of the virgin birth of Jesus as a product of naive, pre-scientific minds. Oh, Back in the first century, people like Luke, they were so gullible, they would believe anything. Luke is fully aware that teenage girls know where babies come from. Luke gets it. We're not naive, we're not gullible. We can dismiss this story on other grounds if we want, but we can't dismiss it because, well, you know, they lived before science. They did not. Science is about observation leading to conclusion. And we are 13 years old, 14 years old, in Nazareth, in the first century. You can observe enough of life. Listen, y'all, most rooms in the first, most houses in the first century got one or two rooms. Mom and dad sleep in the same room as the children most of the time. You can do science in that kind of environment and conclude this is impossible unless there's a God who can do things in our world beyond what we can imagine. Well, we could say, well, well, what about, you know, I read that that virgin birth was common in sort of Greco-Roman mythology and, um, you know, Luke was writing to this, Greco-Roman audience, and so maybe he's just kind of borrowing that idea from Greco-Roman culture to make the myth of Christianity more appealing. Well, here's the problem. The Greco-Roman myths always involved a God having that close physical union with a human being. Luke didn't borrow that kind of story from anywhere. He's telling a very different kind of story. There is no God having a physical union with a human being here. And in all this Greek and Roman myths, the virginity of the young woman, if she's said to be a virgin, is actually meant to be something that helps the story along. Oh, no wonder he was attracted to her or she will be more fertile than others. No wonder. But in this story, Mary's like, hey, my virginity is actually a barrier to the story. Luke is telling a very different kind of story. He's not borrowing it from somebody else's mythology. Why did early Christians tell this kind of story? Not to make it easier for anyone to believe in the greatness of Jesus. You wanna make a case for the greatness of Jesus, talk about his miracles, talk about his teaching, talk about his resurrection. Do you think you need to add virgin birth to the list? Unless it really happened this way? We're gonna tell you this crazy story that only God could pull off, and the only reason we're gonna do it is because we are convinced that this is how it really happened. What convinced you, Luke? Well, things like eyewitness testimony. Read the first few verses of Luke, and he'll tell you. I talked to people who lived these things, saw these things, heard these things, Eh, it couldn't happen that way science would say it's never happened this way before it'll never happen this way we we could run a million experiments and never see a virgin conceive a child again that's the point isn't it jesus comes into our world by a power that is greater than our world it really shouldn't shock us that it comes in a way that's unprecedented If I trust myself more than I trust God, then the limits of my understanding become the limits of his power and grace. God, I can't imagine this, therefore you can't do it. I'm the box and you have to fit in it. Jesus, here's my world. You're welcome to come inside it, but you have to fit into my world. Jesus says no. I am great, the son of the most high. I will rule forever. The world is mine. I will reshape you to live in the world that belongs to me. So when we talk about reality as a mark of what it, what it would mean to trust God in this way, we're talking about trusting Jesus to reshape us, to fit into the world that belongs to him. Here's the final mark. Surrender. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus into a kingdom where people trust that nothing will be impossible with God, then be ready to have your whole life turned upside down and changed even in ways that leave you greatly troubled. Like verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled. She was puzzled. How can this be? And then in the end, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God, I am surrendering to you. My whole life is about to be turned upside down. Who knows what people are going to say about me? They know I haven't been living in my husband's home yet. And they're going to see that I'm having a child. It's going to tear my whole world upside down. The rumors are going to spread around my tiny little village no matter how many times i retell the story about gabriel and this announcement let it be to me according to your word my life is not my own i surrender myself to you i'm all in i'm not trusting myself i'm not trusting that my vision for my life is the best lord jesus Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, I am trusting your vision for my life more than I trust my own vision. Surrender makes every relationship work better, every healthy relationship. What what movie do you want to watch tonight? I don't know. Christmas story? Ah, we've seen it a hundred times. Grinch, nah, it's kinda sad and depressing. Somebody's gonna have to surrender. Somebody's gonna have to say, your vision for movie time is better than mine. Hey, we wanna go to that party that Chrissy mentioned? What time does it start? What time? 1.30. Oh yeah, 130. We probably need some lunch before that. Yeah. What do you want to eat? Somebody's going to have to surrender. Surrender makes every healthy relationship work better, but it's hard to do because it's really hard to trust. Is your vision for my life as good as the vision I could come up with? let's learn that calling of surrender in the safest place possible. Where else would you wanna learn how to surrender your whole life and your whole self to someone else than from the God who came into your world as a tiny human being? You wanna talk about surrender? Go from being God most high eternal son of the eternal father and surrender yourself to become a tiny ball of cells growing in the womb of a teenager in an out of the way village in Palestine. That's surrender. Can I trust God's vision for the world so much That I would surrender myself in that way. And Jesus says, absolutely, I will. And that's why his people can say, absolutely, Jesus, we will trust you. We saw how you surrendered yourself to the womb. We saw how you surrendered yourself ultimately to the cross. We will follow you. We trust you more than we trust ourselves. With us, many things are impossible. But with a God like this, we trust it all to you, Jesus. Because with you, the things that are impossible with us can be achieved at a level of beauty and love and goodness that we could never imagine. Let's take a moment and pray and give him thanks. Lord Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself to come into our world. Thank you for being flesh and blood, redeemer, savior, friend of sinners. Thank you for coming into a world filled with injustice and suffering and hardship and pain and smashed thumbs and splintered crosses just because you love people and want to redeem them. Give us your heart of love, we pray. Amen.